0: Number one, the government is to regulate what the private enterprises do so that they are less self-serving, profit-oriented, and are more socially concerned. That's why minimum wage is something socialists always supported. Many of them want there to be limits on how much prices can be raised by corporations or how much profits can be earned by them. And the second reason socialists want the government to come in is to redistribute wealth. Because capitalism has this tendency to concentrate wealth in very few hands and deprive the mass of people. So the socialists want the government to come in using taxes and using government spending to do a bit of redistribution, to equalize a system that turns unequal very quickly so for these people socialism means that the government comes in regulates and taxes to make what we might call capitalism because it leaves it in it leaves business in the hands of private enterprises and markets but we could call it capitalism with a humane face capitalism with a certain welfare focus the welfare of all the people and here are some examples denmark Norway, Germany, Italy, France, those countries are often referred to as socialist. Their governments are often governments of socialist parties, and that's what those parties mean, that they will have the government do this regulating and redistributing. That's one concept of socialism around the world. It's pretty close to what Bernie Sanders means in the United States or what Jeremy Corbyn means in Great Britain. But here's the second one. In the second view, this first one doesn't go far enough. Because yes, the government comes in and controls things and redistributes, but it's in a perpetual war which the government often loses with those very private enterprises who try to get around the government regulation, who try to get around the government taxation. We're all familiar with those examples of companies, for example, Amazon, which has earned billions in profits the last two years and paid absolutely no taxes to the United States government. Indeed, this last year, they're getting a refund in excess of $100 million. So we know that private corporations do everything in their power to use their profits, to use their political power to undo, to evade, Uh, all of those socialistic regulations and redistributions. And this has led some socialists to say you have to go further. It not enough to regulate and redistribute. The government should, here we go, directly take over the enterprises. There shouldn't be private enterprises because those will always be run for the profit of the private owner. If you want the economy to serve everybody, then the agent of everybody, the government, that we all elect, at least in theory, should take over and run the businesses so they behave in the way that's good for everybody, and there isn't this perpetual war between a regulating government and private enterprise. And the same argument says we shouldn't allow the market to decide who gets what, because a market always delivers whatever is scarce to the people with the most money. It's a institution for those who are rich. And who stay that way by using the market. So these socialists go further. The government should take over enterprises, literally own and operate the factories, stores, and offices. And instead of the market deciding who gets what, it should be planned in terms of what we want for the society as a whole. These kinds of socialists, after the 1920s, took the name communists to signal that they went further than the other socialists in order to take over through the government the apparatus of the economy so some people mean by socialism government regulating a private capitalism to make it more humane to make it less unequal and other people say no 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 socialism means for them that the government takes over the enterprise and plans the distribution of output rather than leaving it to the market. And this second group of socialists often, not always, but often takes the name communist to show how they're different from the first group. And in those kinds of examples, the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, and for parts of their history, Cuba, Vietnam, and so on, are examples.
1: 这两者的区别究竟何在呢第一也就是说福利国家中的福利是吧像瑞典这样的国家是世界著名的高福利国家 而反过来讲，如果国家在提供公共服务这一点上达不到选民的要求，那你是要下台的，是吧？这是老百姓对你的要求，不是你想干就干，不想干就可以不干的，是吧？因此啊，像瑞典这样的国家，我们知道它也是多党制的，是吧？呃，瑞典的社会党可以说是呃搞福利国家很有名，但是瑞典也有右派，是吧？也有。瑞典人民党那是他的右派，是吧？瑞典自由党是吧？那是他的中派。这些政党就意识形态而言，他们并不喜欢福利国家，但是他们在台上也不得不搞这些福利。我这里讲的就是这个福利国家，他讲的福利是政府的责任，啊，也就是说，所谓大家知道什么叫做责任呢？所谓责任就是。不管你喜欢不喜欢都必须干的事情 是吧？那么这个劳动是吧？劳动对于谁是责任呢？对于劳改犯来讲是责任，是吧？因为这不是他想劳动就可以劳动的，是吧？呃，他不想劳动他就不劳动啊，那不行的，是吧？但是劳动对于谁是权利呢？对于自由人来讲是权利，是吧？自由人他是啊可以，他要劳动是吧？你必须给他创造就业机会，是吧？但是如果他不想劳动，你不能把他抓起来。那个那个那个那个那个劳改当然老百姓有时候也不会换人无关紧要但是这个大恩大德不管是福利国家还是不是福利国家哪个国家大概都做不到这一点 但是power 是吧？这个这个这个呃，我给了，那是我做好人，是吧？我不给，那你也不能说我是坏人，是吧？这个这个这个是是是呃，是是我的权利，或者说是我的爱好。那么统治者有福利这个爱好，搞福利这个爱好，到底是一桩好事还是一桩坏事呢？当然，大家可以有各种不同的见解。是吧？有人可以认为，是吧？这个社会主义是一种呃美好的理想，统治者如果有这种爱好，那是好事儿。有人也许是所谓的右派，呃，他们认为这是一种不好的呃思想，是吧？因此，他们建议统治者不必有这种爱好。但是，不管这个爱好到底是好还是坏，它是统治者的爱好，而不是老百姓的权利。这一点是。没有任何变化的，我觉得斯大林同志啊，也许他是一个好人，是吧？呃，但是他搞的那一套，也仅仅是因为他是个好人，是吧？呃，假如他搞的这个事真是好事的话，是吧？这也不能说是吧？是苏联的老百姓有权利要求他这样做，而是由于他良心大大的好，所以他才呃这样干，是吧？如果他不想这样干了，是吧？他就可以不这样干，是吧？我们知道苏联，尽管 到了七八十年代应该说他的福利这个这个什么别人的责备因此 呃，出发点是好的，是吧？我们假定他们是呃理想主义者，是吧？呃，他们是想做好事的，是吧？但是，好人做好事，这并不等于福利国家，是吧？福利国家那是你不想干也得干的，是吧？呃，那才是所谓的福利国家，是吧？这是第一。第二，福利国家中的所谓二次分配，必须是正调节。第二 什么叫做正调节呢 那就是说, 异负的那就是初始分配的我们现在经常用的一个指标囊括全社会的财富大概也不可能 呃, 民主国家的二次分配 那么，多数决定产生的福利政策，一般来讲是有利于穷人的。如果我们现在有一种说法，说西方发达国家已经是所谓的啊中产社会，是吧？呃，或者说叫做呃橄榄型社会，是吧？说这个穷的人和富的人都是少数，呃，而这个呃中产阶层是多数。即使是这样，由多数人决定的。福利政策也是有利于社会中最弱势的那些群体的有逻辑说服力的一个解释 呃, 这个竞争实力比较弱 啊, 但是, 罗尔斯说, 或者我们也可以说这种无知之目可以做广义的理解 啊，我还是会赞成，呃，比较基本的这个福利性的医疗保险，是吧？呃，因为谁都不敢保证我一辈子都不得病，是吧？当然了，如果你是呃青年人，如果你是很健康的人，也许你赞成的这个福利保险，呃，这个福利性的医疗和福利性的养老，这个程度不会，啊，不会太高，是吧？但是毫无疑问，你会赞成。补贴那些最需要补贴的人 呃, 不是全额了 啊, 艾滋病提供某种特殊福利的政策 是吧? 每一个美国的白人再穷的穷人 呃，这个民主制度就一定能够给他们提供的是吧？因为谁也不会假设我将来是不是有朝一日会变成大熊猫是吧？这个这个，呃，所以现在有人说啊，这个民主国家也会出现所谓的福利失灵是吧？那么对这些群体，呃，你不能用多数决定的办法来改善他们的处境，而必须有所谓的NGO是吧？所谓的第三部门，所谓的志愿者组织。呃, 这个志愿者组织就是专门干这种事情的 但是我要说, 哪怕是基本层次的社会保障 在我刚才讲的两种情况下，这个民主国家的福利政策有高也有低，是吧？像美国一般被认为是低福利国家，瑞典一般被认为是高福利国家，但是他们不可能有负福利，是吧？如果这个福利政策实行以后，对贫富分化的改善很明显。如果 急逆系数下降的很多 是吧? 或者说叫做自由放任取义于强势群体的这样一种再分配所谓福利就是把好处都给那些有权有势的人还要不平等福利国家设想一种既没有福利 1960年到 呃, 有多少不等的变化 034下降到 0324 那么西欧的一些国家但是 贫富分化还不那么严重，搞了二次分配，贫富分化反而变得非常严重，是吧？这个现象啊，我觉得是呃一个很有趣的现象，是吧？改革前夕就是一九七八年，是吧？有人根据我们国家提供的官方数据啊做过统计，是吧？呃，他说啊，那个时候如果就工资或者工分的有形收入。或者公分的有形收入 或者说初始分配的收入而言 是吧? 当时我们国家要说工资收入差别并不大这个还有一大堆的 这个, 这个, 80 包括教育啊、卫生啊等等这各方面是吧？呃，包括公交补贴啊，包括等等等等啊这些方面。如果大家知道，在改革以前，这个城里人相对于农民而言，有所谓的十四项福利是吧？这是呃大家都喜欢当城里人，不愿意当农民的一个最重要的呃理由是吧？那么把这十四项福利造成的城乡差别。考虑进去 把城市和农村合计, 就是美国 0331的程度 是吧？呃，当然了，他为了呃改变这种状况啊，在文革后期搞了所谓的合作医疗，是吧？这个合作医疗啊，有人说呃非常了不起，有人说呃起的作用没那么大，是吧？呃，关于这一点呢，我觉得这是个很复杂的问题。但是这个合作医疗是吧？我们要知道，第一，它只是文革中后期的事情。在 1949年到 那个新型合作医疗不一样的我们最近提出要搞新型农村合作医疗 呃, 在这方面搞得最好的就是江苏省 呃, 这个福利性医疗资源的提出的目标就是要达到 人均筹资只有150到550元 而在港职工, 人均筹资在1200到1500 只有也就是说占江苏省有七千多万人口 4200到 6000元 相当于 0.7 是吧 相当于一百个农民, 大家知道我们现在的这个吉尼系数全国平均大概是在0.5左右 07 乃至更高 是吧? 那你就可想而知, 是吧? 这个医疗制度相比起以前而言也是也就是付福利的色彩在降低 如果這個趨勢進一步的發展下去,現在的這個富福利 也就是说达到了零福利的标准 再进一步发展下去，那就会啊走向这个福利国家了，是吧？但是这是呃若干年以后的事情，是吧？现在这个事情还很远，是吧？所以我要说啊，在中国提出福利国家还是自由放任的这个问题，我认为根本就是个笑话，是吧？像江苏省这样的状态，你说到底西方的左派还是右派，谁会反对呢？是吧？ 是吧, 但是这是, 呃, 若干年以后的事情, 是吧? 左派他是赞成福利国家的自由和福利的问题成为一个真问题还都谈不上这种事情因此我说福利国家和非福利国家的它搞的这个福利往往不是老百姓要求于政府的造成严重的等级分化 大家知道，这个呃，民主国家的这个福利性医疗资源分配，从来都是从最穷的人那里分起的，是吧？呃，大家知道，像英国这样的国家是全民公费医疗的，是吧？所以我们说它是高福利国家，因为它的福利性医疗资源是普遍覆盖的，是吧？但是美国就被认为是一个低福利国家。为什么呢 商业性医疗保险，实际上是你自己出钱保自己，没有国家的转移支付，因此没有人说这是福利，是吧？呃，而现在对美国的医疗制度批评的最严重的，就是美国现在实际上是有一些人是没有任何医疗保险的。有人说这部分人有百分之十，有人说这部分人有百分之十五。10 15 percent 是吧？这是美国医疗制度的一个被认为是它的一个很大的缺陷，是吧？像欧洲、像英国、像更不用说瑞典，那就不会有这样的现象，是吧？可是有一个很有趣的问题是，这百分之十的没有医疗保险的人是谁呢？是吧？大家可能会想象这些人是穷人，恰恰相反，这些人不是美国的穷人。恰恰相反 因为美国对于一般人是不提供福利的都要包括我们中国的访问学者美国的医疗保险的确也比较贵美国虽然一般的人是没有医疗保险的但是有两种人是国家给他们买医疗保险的纳税起点的低收入者包括失业者他绝不是只覆盖最富的人这个这个最穷的人是没有福利的最弱势的那些人所谓福利房制度是什么制度呢包括有的国家会给实际上不穷的人也提供你不能有第二套房甚至绿地也比较多所以有人问我就是像美国的贫民窟是什么个样子 我说啊, 如果就看外表, 那些地方犯罪率都比较高集中的居住在一个地方那倒也真的很难说但是最穷的那些人 尤其是黑人, 吃业者, 是吧? 从来不会给总统分房子的绝不是你可以永久住下去的 呃, 我们国家很多大学有校长楼 他還要有,是吧,所以這就 结果这个租金就高得让他受不了 美国是不会给总统分房子的，是吧？但是美国会给那些没有工作的人分房子，是吧？呃，但是我们中国呢，是吧？大家知道，要说给社会上的穷人由国家统一分房子，是吧？呃，中国倒是有一次，是吧？一九四九年的时候啊，中国曾经把那个呃没收来的房子，是吧？那些。呃，富人都有些富人逃跑了，跑到台湾去什么什么。那些剩下来的那些房子，曾经把一部分这些房子分给了社会上的呃穷人，是吧？住房困难户。但是只此一次，以后中国再也没有搞过这一类的住房，是吧？大家知道，中国改革以前，中国基本的住房制度就是国家把钱交给各个单位，由各个单位给各个单位的自己人。按照大小不同的特权 呃，当时我们的呃政府的干部，这个呃工资并不是特别高，是吧？但是他们比较吸引人的就是他们的呃住房，呃一般来讲都是可以得到保证的，是吧？而这个国有大型企业的一般工人，国家也是承诺给他们分配住房的，但是那叫做面包会有的，是吧？呃，什么时候不知道，是吧？这个这个这个就。就往往拖得很长第二轻工业的那类企业 是吧？那么当然最倒霉的就是农民了，是吧？农民的收入最低，而且农民也是国家规定，完全不管你住房的，是吧？正因为我们的集体化从一开始就规定它是生产的集体化，是吧？这个消费包括住房都是啊农民各自解决的。正因为有这个规定，所以中国搞集体化的一九五六年高级社标准章程中明确规定。农民的耕地要充公 要入社, 就改了 呃，困难你就盖个草棚，你要是呃富一点，你就盖个瓦房，是吧？但是国家反正是不管你的是吧？呃，这个呃公家反正是不管你的。
2: Now, as far as socialism is concerned, that term has been so uh, evacuated of content over the last century that it's hard even to use. I mean, the Soviet Union, for example, was called a socialist society, and it was called that by the two major propaganda uh, uh, operations in the world, uh, the U.S., the Western one, and the Soviet one. They both called it socialism for opposite reasons. Uh, The West called it socialism in order to defame socialism by associating it with this uh, miserable tyranny. The Soviet Union called it socialism in order to gain whatever, to to benefit from the moral appeal that true socialism had among uh, large parts of the general world population. But this was about as remote from socialism as you can imagine. I mean the core notion of at least traditional socialism is that uh, what you mentioned, that working people have to be in control of production and communities have to be in control of their own lives and so on. Uh, it's, uh, and you know this is, this uh, the Soviet Union is the exact opposite of that. Uh, working people had no control over anything. They were uh, virtual slaves. Uh, and the collapse of the Soviet Union is in fact a small victory for socialism in my opinion. It eliminated one of the major barriers to it and should have been recognized as such but the term has been uh, as I said so become so meaningless that it's hard even to use if we use it in the traditional sense which you brought up uh, that goes that, you know, that goes straight back in American history you read the working-class press in uh, the mid-nineteenth century, you know, press uh, published by uh, um, artisans and what were called factory girls, young women from the farms working in the textile mills in uh, eastern Massachusetts, which was the center of beginning of the industrial revolution. Uh, their press was calling for, uh, um, they said the, their theme was that those who, uh, uh, those who work in the mills ought to own them. Uh, wage labor, which was called wage slavery. Uh, was regarded by most Americans as not very different from slavery. Uh, even the Republican Party uh, regarded wage labor as just, a preli- at best, a preliminary to free labor, but intolerable, because it's a kind of servitude. A uh, large part of the uh, northern population fighting the Civil War was fighting under that banner. Uh, this goes straight through the 20th century, the idea that Uh, people should be in control of their own destinies and lives including the institutions in which they work the communities in which they live and so on call it what name you want but that's traditional socialism and there are uh, there are today uh, attempts to describe a kind of a detailed vision of the future uh, uh, based on these notions the most extensive and detailed one I know is uh, uh, by Michael Albert uh, at ZNet, which you mentioned uh, participatory economics and there are other such proposals uh, but I think this is deeply you know, deeply ingrained in uh, uh, people's understanding and consciousness and barely below the surface in fact it's a call for um, essentially uh, extension of democracy to the industrial sphere uh, and to uh, communities uh, as well uh, we should also bear in mind that the the leading uh, American social philosopher John Dewey, uh, who's you know, as mainstream as apple pie, uh, he, uh, his, he, and his main work was concentrated on democracy, uh, he pointed out over and over again that uh, uh, as long as we have what we co- he called industrial feudalism, that is uh, uh, a tyrannical control, uh, private power controlling production commerce, uh, democracy will be very limited. Uh, it has to we have to move to what he called industrial democracy if we hope to have significant democracy as for politics uh, his position was that uh, until that happens uh, politics will be uh, the shadow cast over society by big business whatever the and and i think most of the population uh, recognizes that and accepts it
3: Um, i i realize that a lot of our economic system you know has a lot of flaws that um, a lot of problem problems with it you know like wage labor that's not particularly pleasant that you know the rich have the big gap between like rich and poor but i mean it's together now because there's been like increasing standards of living in america and isn't in that in one way, like a justification for it, the why it's still around, why capitalism, from my understanding, has triumphed and it's still...
4: Strong. No, it's not. I don't think so. I mean, there was rising standards of living in slave societies. Slaves were much better off in the early 19th century than in the early 18th century. Is that an argument for slavery? <laughs> well, I'm... It's a terrible argument, you know? I mean, you, any system... In fact, you could give that argument for Stalinism. Uh, There was very substantial economic growth in the Soviet Union. It's the second world, not the third. It was until 1989. It was the second world, not the third world. Now it's back in the third world because it's undergoing capitalist reforms. Something you're not allowed to say, incidentally, but if you read, you'll notice. They've had 10 years of capitalist reforms which have driven them right back into the third world where they came from, okay? But if you just look at it in terms of economic growth, it was reasonably successful. That's exactly what bothered Western leaders. Uh, if you read uh, the documentary record, right up to the 1960s, where it sort of runs dry at the moment, you find that the great concern was that the second, the Soviet Union was presenting itself as a model for modernization within a single generation. Uh, and that was uh, raising all sorts of trouble, not only in the third world, but even in the rich countries. They didn't care about Russian aggression, but they cared about or, you know, Stalin's terror or anything and didn't bother anybody. In fact, Truman admired Stalin, you know, thought he's an honest man, you know, to deal with him and so on. He said he didn't care what happens in Russia, you know, and so on. But uh, the, uh, uh, the same with Churchill, incidentally, who's defending Stalin in cabinet meetings as a great man and so on and so forth. Uh, they kill as many people as they want. That's irrelevant. The problem was then they never expected them to be attacking anybody. You know, uh, But they, uh, what they were afraid of was the economic growth, which was, uh, especially in the third world, uh, considered quite impressive.
3: If this system is so bad and everything, which why system? hasn't there been, excuse me? Our system? Our system. It's so, it's so bad, why hasn't,
4: why hasn't there been greater movements to challenge it? Oh, I mean, it's is been this... challenged all the time. I mean, we have, a, for example, we have a very violent labor history. Uh, hundreds of American workers were being killed right into the late 30s uh, and finally they got labor rights. Uh, there has been a very extensive challenge through the, through the 50s. Uh, in the 60s the whole thing blew up uh, and in fact many uh, uh, concessions had to be made. Uh, and it still continues. I mean, we right now happen to be in a period of regression, but as I say, it's cyclic. You know, there was much more regression in the 1920s when labor was really crushed. Uh, So, yes, there's always challenge and struggle. Uh, But when you say, is the system so bad, I don't even know what that means. I mean, slave societies went on for centuries and centuries without any challenge. Okay. Uh, Did that justify them? And, in fact, uh, if you really want to be serious about it, the slave owners were giving arguments rather like yours. So, slavery, very much like it. Take, read, say, George Fitzhugh, who was the leading spokesman for the American you know, slave owners in the South, Uh, at at the time when it was becoming a serious issue, like around the 1840s, he had pretty powerful arguments in favor of slavery. Uh, What he was saying is, uh, he was saying is, look, the reason you Northerners are against slavery is because you're anti-Negro racists. Uh, We are not racists. We think that you should take care of your subjects, Uh, so we treat them nicely. Uh, And we even do that on economic grounds because they're our capital, you know, like if I own, make an anachronistic analogy, if if I buy a car and you rent a car, okay, and somebody comes a year later and has a look at the two cars, uh, which car is going to be in better shape? Okay, well, mine, because I own it, so I'm going to take care of it, not yours, because you rent it and you can just throw it away and get another one, okay? That's exactly Fitzhugh's argument. He says, look, we own people, you just rent them, so therefore we take care of them. We treat them well, we respect them, Uh, they're our capital, besides we have human relations with them, we're pre-capitalist, we still have human relations. Uh, You uh, just treat them as tools uh, under wage slavery, and they're much worse off. Uh, So we're the ones who are moral, you're the ones who are immoral. And in fact, under... uh, Under the slave system, if you take a look, it was reasonably efficient, Uh, you know, conditions were sort of improving, people lived better, slaves lived better in 1850 than in 1750. Okay, everything you're saying could stand as a perfectly good, not only could be a good argument for slavery, but was offered as an argument for slavery. Similar arguments were given for Bolshevism, or say, fascism. Why was Hitler so popular? Hitler was the most, uh, through the 30s, Hitler was the most popular leader probably in German history. Well, the reason is he carried out a social revolution. People were living a lot better. I mean, like not everybody, you know, not Jews, for example. Uh, But but Germans were living a lot better. It was very successful. Uh, Hitler either understood or, you know, figured out, or his advisors did, that uh, large-scale state expenditures could rescue a, a morbid capital economy from destruction, pretty much what American business learned during the Second World War, and he was doing it. Uh, and it was, uh, the economy was booming, people were better off, and so on. Is that an argument for fascism? No. We should recognize what I think is true, I've written about it plenty myself, that the Bolshevik Revolution, the so-called revolution, it was really a coup, was really a counter-revolution, which uh, uh, placed state power in the hands of a highly authoritarian, anti-socialist group, which within a couple of months had destroyed the factory councils, had destroyed the Soviets, had dismissed the constituent assembly because they knew they were going to lose, and had eliminated every popular movement and had done exactly what Trotsky said, turned the country into a labor army under the control of the maximal leader. That was mid-1918. I mean, since then, there hasn't been a shred of socialism in the Soviet Union. Now, of course, they called it socialism, but they also called it democracy. You know, they were people's democracies, the purest form of democracy, they were socialism. The, left, the West, the big propaganda system in the world, of course, just laughed at the democracy part, but it loved the socialism part because that's a way to defame socialism. So if you think that the fall of the Soviet Union uh, is a blow to socialism, you ought to also think on the same grounds that it's a blow to democracy. After all, they call themselves democracies too, so why isn't a blow to democracy? It makes as much sense. It's only when it gets filtered through the Western propaganda system that it's not a blow to democracy, but it is a blow to socialism. But you know, there's absolutely no reason to play that game, whether you play it in dissent or in the nation or on the right or anywhere else. Expose it for the fraud that it is. His comment that the ideology was flawed. What ideology? The ideology of totalitarianism? Yeah, it's deeply flawed. I mean, they were the initial modern totalitarians. It's not, it has nothing to do with socialism. They destroyed socialism within weeks. You know, they didn't wait. By 1918, it was finished, and they knew it. You know, like it's not a secret. They knew it. I mean, in fact, Lenin, as soon as you know, as soon as he sort of got grips of things after, he said, let's. We, he moved to what he called state capitalism, which is what it was. It had nothing to do with socialism. Socialism. I mean, you can argue about it. There's no point in arguing what the word means. But what it always meant at the core was that. Uh, Producers take control of production. You know, working people take control of production. What's sometimes called industrial democracy—that was the absolute core of it. Well, you know, there was more socialism in Germany in Western Europe than there was in Russia. You know, Russia's about the most anti-socialist place you can imagine since 1918. Had wage labor, had super-exploitation, uh, had no element of workers' control or involvement or participation. Well, Pure, you know, what's it got to do with socialism? It's the exact opposite on every point. As I say, the West liked to call that socialism while laughing at the fact that they called themselves Democrats. But that's for purely propaganda reasons. I mean, unless you're committed to being part of the Western propaganda system, there's nothing to say about that issue of dissent except to laugh.